This is Counter Stories, a podcast by people of color, for people of color, and everyone else. I'm Anthony Galloway, senior partner at Dendros Group and pastor of St. Mark's AME Church, Duluth, Minnesota. Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General for the state of Minnesota. Any comment and insights that I share are strictly my own and should not be attributed to my employer. I'm Don Eubanks, associate of Dendros Group and member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Indians. And I'm Holly Lee, owner of the Other Media Group and producer of this show. And I want to just say congratulations to Anthony for getting his pastorship. I don't know if that's the correct word. Uh, and being head of, of the church here in, in Minnesota, in Duluth. That's right. Congratulations. Yeah. Kudos. I appreciate it. The African Methodist Episcopal Church is is it's the oldest uh, black church in Duluth, Minnesota, and is seen a lot of history in that area. So we're gonna do our grab bag episode today. For those who are listening, this is a chance for us to touch on a whole lot of things. Oftentimes, we get to go in depth on 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 specific issues, um, but there are times where there's just too much going on around for us to be able to just leave alone at they as at their own. So. We're going to put a bunch of things together. So we're going to start our grab bag today um, talking about John Gruden, the the now former <laughs> um, head coach of the Raiders, who uh, whose emails have come to light, both for their um, misogynistic content, uh, racist content, and, uh, and et al. And so I, I want to start there just because, and homophobic, thank you. And so I want to start there just because this isn't the first time that sports team leaders um, have had things come to light, um, which they have then had to resign. So so what's coming up for you all in your communities and your conversations around this yet new development uh, with this head coach? Well, you know, um, you know, having played football in high school and college um, and, you know, watching football on weekends and just kind of. You know, I, I think uh, for myself, Anthony, I, this also, for me, this, again, speaks to me, to me, speaks to the larger culture of the NFL. And, you know, we've touched on this in uh, previous discussions on Counter Stories surrounding Colin Kaepernick. And the fact that, you know, if you remember, you know, Colin took a knee, a peaceful gesture in uh, solidarity and protest of police brutality that was happening throughout the United States. And he was uh, literally blackballed from the NFL. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, and so now, I mean, and we, you know, we have discussed that on a couple different occasions on, on our podcast here. And we've talked about, we, t- you know, how, how uh, the NFL and then once uh, um this individual who is no longer in office came in office. He kind of politi- politicized the whole thing, turned the whole thing around to, to make it me- seem anti-American. And Gruden's emails that came to light in terms of his racist, homophobic, and misogynistic language that he was sharing with others who are connected to the NFL just kind of shows that underlying current. And, you know, I've been seeing... Um, you know, people all over the place, a lot of comments that that all, you know, already making excuses that they he didn't mean anything by his by his emails. Right. It got him fired. Um, well, I mean, and let's and let's be clear, 
in his emails that have come to light, he uses a homophobic racial slur against the league's commissioner. Um, it calls him a clueless anti-football, and I'm not going to use the word that he calls them, but it's it's a it's a it's a misogynistic reference. Um, and then um, uh, makes reference to to the coach of the then Ram, the then coach of the Rams, drafting his words queers as a reference to Michael Sam, a gay player chosen by the team in 2014. So these, the statements that he's making, I mean, one, you don't get along in, in, in life and in a career or in a job by calling your boss names <laughs> first and foremost. <laughs> um, but I, I think also what's, what's, what's not talked about here is, is some of the things he's had to say about those who choose to take a knee and participate in other, in other things. So there's racist tropes that are here as well, but that banter is going, you know, there are folks who receive the emails. <laughs> well, and so go ahead. Well, and the fact that this has been a pattern for over a decade, right? I mean, it, it came up with a, initially with a recent uh, incident, and then as investigative reporters began to look into it, they could find even more information. And I think for me, one of the the parts that really adds insult to the injury is mm-hmm. when you hear the general manager of the Raiders, Mike, Mike Mayock, I think is the way you pronounce his last name, and I'm quoting uh, the general manager, Mayak, says, I am sad for the whole Gruden family. Yeah. But at the end of the day, we are all held accountable for our actions. And that's the way we have to look at it. And I'm listening to that and I'm thinking, really? So you are more empathetic for Gruden's family and he as an individual than you are for the general population and all the folks who have been denigrated by his misogynistic and racist, uh, sexist remarks. So who's who, who said that? The general manager of the Raiders, oh. Mike, Mike Mayock, M-A-Y-O-C-K. But like, who cares? Like, well, I but, mean, I'm sorry. I Like, I honestly, like th- this topic, like, uh, do we not expect this from these like rich white guys who know, you know, who have no connection to the communities that to their fan base? I mean, all the people who root for them and, and the regular people. I mean, I, I guess I'm not surprised that they talk this way when they don't think anybody's listening and that at this point they're defending each other and feeling bad for each other for losing their job versus all the people who are affected by it. I, I understand what you're saying, Lee, and and I perfectly, you know, can empathize with your with what your statement is. But my problem is this is a public statement. I mean, he he is being asked with regard to what his comments are in terms of Gruden himself, and this is a general manager's response. But previously in the interview, he also talked about how committed the team is, and he is to you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion. So basically my example here illustrates yet again how someone can talk out of both sides of their mouth and and not see or think that people will see the inconsistencies in this. And that yet again, you've got someone who, because of his positional power, as well as the fact that he's a white man, um, talk about privilege, you know, that that he can make a statement like this and feel that it is perfectly reasonable to make a statement and not further injure people 
and segments of our society who have been offended and at the receipt of, you know, receiving the end of his attacks. I mean, it's just, you're sitting here thinking, it's 2021. When, when do folks really wake up? So let's unpack what you said a little bit, Luz, because I think you're getting to the to the meat, to the heart of the the issue. And I think this not only is is a issue in the NFL, but I think across the board in many many white organizations that that look at diversity, equity, and inclusion, because you know, I, or as ways to address um, uh, some of the disparities that exist in the NFL. You know. I don't think there's a shortage of black players in the NFL or players of color. I don't think that's really the issue, but I think what that really gets to and what you are alluding to in terms of his statement is you can bring folks of color in, but if you don't change the culture, remember Mm -hmm. we, we saw that at NPR where NPR would, would bring in all the, top shelf reporters of color and other folks in, in, in uh, administration. And then what happened? They left because the culture didn't change. And so I think that uh, general manager's comments um, is a great example of how that culture, in fact, hasn't changed. Well, I, I just I think this is also a case where where our new market pressures are coming to light, and this is one of the things that you know I'm 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 <laughs> I am a I am I do consider myself a capitalist and a collectivist at the same time. I'm just got to be honest and own it. Um, and so there's a fair part of market piece that comes into this, right? You, it it, it came to light, right? So we you, I hear the point about things coming to light is the only reason that things are are happening, but but. Folks in, in in this in this current market, you you you, it was not going to be feasible for him to continue as head coach with these things coming to light. I think that that's a win. I think that that's a um, a development that folks are now having to contend with. That that the market is is no longer at least not as much as it did before. I'm not saying it's we've got any panacea, but now. <laughs> People don't have a taste in their mouth for this kind of behavior anymore, and so I think there are some some shifts that are happening. I mean, would 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 we be in a situation with somebody resigning if this came to light even four years ago, five years ago? I just don't. I I, w- I wouldn't have seen it. I wouldn't have believed it. And so so and I think it it, it dovetails into other things that are that are are changing. Um, an Indiana police officer was was um, uh, prosecutors on Tuesday charged Indianapolis. Uh, Metropolitan Police Sergeant Eric M. Huxley with official misconduct and battery with moderate bodily injury, both level six felonies, according to the Indy Star, after he kicked Jermaine Vaughn, 38, in the face while helping to arrest a man on September 24th. Would this be happening if we didn't have... um, if we hadn't gone through what we've gone through with George Floyd? I'm just curious what y'all think. Yeah, that that stood out to me too, um, Anthony, for a similar reason insofar as that the uh, police chief immediately came out and uh, just indicated his, the police chief is Randall Taylor. And at a press conference uh, before sharing the body camera footage, he made the following statement. It hurts me to see any of our officers treat someone that way, uh, the way that you're going to see shortly. There's no excuse for it. 
And he called for the termination of this sergeant. Uh, that I agree with you, uh, Anthony. We wouldn't see that, but for where we're at, the racial reckoning in, in our country. I mean, let me let me let me also give credit to to Chief uh, Rondo Arredondo, um, who who came out right away in the George Floyd case and made the firing right away and said, "Come on, I'll take the fight with the union. I'll take the fight with whatever." But this firing is going down, and so I think that that has has made a new game where there's a different level of accountability that folks have to take into account. And 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 let's be clear that this is also having. Um, Having had the the second incident, or not second, but another incident here in the um, in in the Twin Cities during the protests, we see uh, that video came to light with other with with police interactions with protesters, and so I think there's a different level of accountability. But to the you know to the thing you just brought up, Anthony, in terms of uh, that video that that uh, uh, came out early or late last week, showing uh, Minneapolis police officers in their comments as they're purposely aiming their rubber bullets at protesters and 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 some of the uh racist comments that they were making at the time and you know as i watched that um you know it it unfortunately supports many of our previous discussions that we've had about the Minneapolis Police Department and, and and the fact that many of those white cops carry this kind of racial bias with them, and we saw it on display. And and um and the fact that you know this whole thing with George Floyd prior to that, you know, Jamar Clark, you throw in Philando Castile in the Twin Cities, we've had this power this powder keg of you know we, uh this needs to change. And, and I think that, you know, when we, when we look at how quickly the uh, chief of police acted in Indianapolis with this particular cop, I think that is one, that is one aspect or one good thing that I see happening periodically in different departments throughout the country. When, when videos clearly supports these guys um, um, in their misconduct. And so they are acting fast in that. But underneath that, the thing that nags me is where's the systemic change coming? I mean, you know, all the protests and everything about this was to try to make systemic change so that we wouldn't have police forces that just systemically um, harbors biases against the people that they're supposed to serve and protect. When do we see those? I mean, so firing one cop at a time isn't going to get us there. Yeah, I agree. Right. With is you. it is it enough of a deterred deterred detergent deterrent detergent deterrent? I think both of those words work well, actually. <laughs> detergent and deterrent. Yes. Deterrent. Is it enough of a deterrent that you know? Okay, so that we caught this guy on video, and immediately the chief was like, let's, let's fire him. This is wrong, right? So what you're saying, Don, right? Where is the systemic change? How can we become more preventive? Are we just saying that, okay, if you get caught, you're going to be, you're going to lose your job? Does that really address the deeper issue of why these police officers still feel like they have the authority to do these sorts of things or that they, ha they have the right to treat the people they're supposed to protect this way? I mean, is that enough of a deterrent? 
I don't you know. know. I mean, it's it's not addressing the the deeper issue, is it? Yeah, you both ra- raise both of you, Don and Lee, raise really good questions along those lines, and and the answer, of course, I think collectively we all agree that that it's not right. But I think what we need to realize in that uh, um, analysis and and broaching the questions that you both have asked is the fact that there um, there is a a woefully un developed um, premature understanding of what systemic racism is in our country. All right. So that most people <laughs> still go there, believe go there and think that it is transactional. That is one person at a time or this one event or one act at a time. They're not seeing those systemic uh, issues yet. Right. So that is part of that growing uh, journey that most of society in our country uh, and and elsewhere, I, I would venture to, to say, still have to realize and understand, right? So when Cap first Kaepernick first took the knee, he focused on that systemic racism, but people saw it as transactional, just his one act, right? Defying the you know the the national anthem and and the NFL's uh, guidance and things of that sort. Fast forward, what is it like seven years later? And we've got more awareness in terms of what the systemic changes need to be. But what we're missing still is people who are in power to connect the dots, to say, yes, this as a police uh, chief, I'm going to terminate uh, this sergeant in Indianapolis and we're going to do X, Y, Z in response to the systemic changes that we need to own as a police department. So that's that second part. It's a both and a yes and yes. Good that you terminated. And then what? What it, what needs to follow after this so that we don't see this repeat itself yet again in, in Indianapolis or anywhere else in our country, for that matter. And and you know I'll, I'll add to just to underscore your point. You know for the both and you know this is a fourteen year old veteran of the force. And so when we talk about who sets culture and organization, people who've been in an organization for a long time um, have a lot uh, to do with that. And so removing folks who are part of or or are in, or show providing leadership for that type of culture, you know, being removed from the picture is one thing. But also, too, uh, to say it another way, uh, Luz, I think people would not like to get day behinds beat <laughs> by police officers in the first place. And I say behind just because I'm a pastor now. I said something else in my previous life. But uh, but I, I think I think one of the through lines between all of this is 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 they got caught. It was videotaped. It came to light. I think for the vast majority of communities of color, we want to have the conversation before it even happens. For example, we here in the in 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 the Midwest, we've got. Um, what's happening in um, for the Dakota Access Pipeline. We have Line 3 in northern Minnesota. We have concerns around our environment and things like that. In California, they are, are, are dealing with, and folks are trying to raise the issue of our own environmental protections with this recent massive oil spill that is now causing um, huge environmental issues. I think this is, this is yet even another indicator of a through line through all of this is can we make the system ch- systemic changes that protect us and our environments and our people before the incidents that make us have to react <laughs> to protect our environments and our people? 
And so I'm just curious, you know, as you as you no. even look at the oil spill and the gun violence, is it even possible to be able to move to that area, that systemic way? No. I just think history shows us we we no matter how hard we try, we are a reactive animal for some reason. I, I just, you know, I mean, right, people are so concerned. Lawmakers are so concerned about if they're going to win their next election, if, you know, then and they just it's one of those things that where people are like, it's not going to happen to me. Right. They just can't even see it within the next two years. Therefore, they don't need to think about it. It's sad, but I feel like I've given up hope on humanity doing anything about the environment. You know, so, I for me, I, I think about it a little bit differently than Hali, and I respect what you're saying. And there's a, an element I, I think that that uh, our society really uh, connects with what, what you just said. Um, but I, I also think, you know, there are other issues such as capitalism and, and putting profits before people, including the safety of the workers on any of these rigs uh, and, and vessels that transport the, the oil. But also just, we are in this um, culture in our country where it is the here and now immediate gratification and what only matters is what I see right now and not having to do much planning for the future. You know, with, you, with regard to, for example, automobile uh, makers who were supposed to start really becoming more eco-friendly in their designs and, and less um, re reliant on oil and fossil fuels and things of that sort. And then they're, they're squawking about how much money it costs to convert their plants and things of that sort. It's, it, it, it constantly is one of these follow the money uh, to hear where and understand where the power is in our society, unfortunately, as, as a capitalist society. And then the other part of it is just as an individualist, you know, so many parts of our Western culture here is people caring about themselves and wanting their, their um, needs met at the expense of whomever, you know, and, and that continues to play itself out with the pandemic, of course, and, and not caring to wear a mask to protect other people. Uh, as if wearing a mask is all that oppressive. And I won't go down that <laughs> path because we've, we've, we've talked about it in the past, but I think there are, are a number of elements that come into play, at least for me, when I think about those issues and, and think about how, um, you know, this planet is, is, is just going to heck in a, in, a, in a real big hurry because of all of these elements and, and people not willing uh, to take and make the hard decisions to live life differently uh, and hold our manufacturers of cars, you know, accountable and, and holding our policy leaders accountable to really be able to make the changes that will warrant having a safe planet for Anthony, your children, and Don, your, you know, your daughter, who's, who's younger than, than my girls. Uh, but nonetheless, I mean, what, what planet are we going to leave to the next generation? You know, Luz, um, uh, listening to, to this made me think, um, and I, I haven't really shared this with anyone other than Mara, 
but a couple weeks ago, um, we had to uh, drive up to Swanville, Minnesota, because um, I, my son and I purchased a quarter side of beef um, from a, a woman I used to work with up at the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Indians. And and so, you know, our GPS took us through St. Joseph's where, you know, Collegeville. And um, and we were on the back highway. Uh, I had no idea where we were going. I'm just following GPS. But as we are driving through the countryside on a nice Saturday morning, um, you know, a lot of open farms. And so you 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 come across the cape, you would just come across occasional homes and farms. But on almost all of them was an American flag. And then there would be an additional American flag, but it would have that blue and black pattern. Have you seen those flags? Oh yeah. Right? And so, you know, and I believe those flags are were produced in support of uh this previous individual who used to be president. And and um yeah, I mean, I, even I uh, there was even a uh, an American flag with the blue and black flag attached to it and boldly printed on that flag was uh F blank blank K Biden. And so driving through the countryside, I kept seeing these flags and I looked at Mara and I said, you know, this land was ours. Meaning as a Native American, all this land used to belong to us. And I looked at her and I said, I feel like I am not welcome. I feel like I'm a foreigner in my own country as I was driving through the countryside. And I just think that, um, you know, and it was just one of those, you know, it, it, there was nothing startling. I'm moving at 60 miles an hour, so I didn't have any fear. But it was the first time I really felt that. I really felt unwelcome. You know, when you see those kind of displays and you know what they stand for, it made me feel unwelcome in my own country. And, um, you know, and I, I just I just wanted to share that because all these things kind of tie together, but it's never really profoundly hit me un until I was on that drive. I was wondering what you guys think about that. Well, and that flag itself, it's the thin blue line flag. And there's been a lot of controversy over it. Um, some also call it the back the blue uh, flag, but the thin blue line flag um is is has become what so many things have, and that is a cultural marker of political position. There's there's this intersection of politics and culture, right? This this forced marriage, right? So we're not talking about um, ethnic identity. We're not talking about culture in the way that we think about um, people groupings. We're talking about a, about folks who are are attaching political identity to culture in in place of, and and that's the large question: in place of what? Um, and, and that becomes inherently problematic because now I'm defending something, not because of a peoplehood, not because of a connection with longstanding history. It's not somebody defending, um, German, not defending, um, you know, being German, not defending being, um, 
African is not even, or, or, or West African, like Ghanaian or Liberian or anything like that. It's not even defending being American because that in and of itself um, cannot be defined by an individual group because we are a pluralistic nation, but we try to act like we're not. And that creates this very problematic thing where um, the debate has to, in that regard, because uh, let me let me let me put it this way, right? I have a rich heritage that goes back many years, and it's positive. It's not rooted in being apart from somebody. It's not rooted in being suppressive over somebody. It's rooted in actual people with actual cultural traditions. What we're actually what we're seeing with a lot of those flags and what a lot of it represents, as I see them, is not an identity that's rooted in that same thing. And so the defense of it almost becomes um, it, it becomes manic because. I can't, it, it's it's not defending a peoplehood. It's defending a, a, a stance looking for a culture. Mm. And unfortunately, the culture it's looking for has very horrible outcomes for people of color. You know, and, and I, I think I, um, my thought on this is something that I, I've wanted to share now for, for some quite some time, months. Um, and, and I attributed to one of my family members where we we had a similar discussion about the flag. And the and the the point that was being made there, and the idea that surfaced as a result of that discussion was, why is it that the far right has, as you said, um, Anthony and, and and Don alluded to this, is appropriated right for their own political message? Uh, why is it that they get to claim this, and why why can't we and and why shouldn't we and and I think we should. And I'd love to hear your feedback on this. Why doesn't the why doesn't uh, it come to our mind that like, hey, we're going to hold up the flag as we are championing race equity, as we are championing, you know, the movement for Black Lives and Black liberation and Indigenous liberation, and and not allow and not default uh, and not you know accede to to the fact that that the far right has done this, you know, and and just to give them basically a challenge to their position that, look, you don't get to claim the flag uh, for it to define your purpose. It is not yours to do so. And we could pivot that. And and I would venture to guess that at some point they're going to stop using the American flag for their purposes if if the movement for Black Lives and Black liberation, Indigenous liberation uh, comes forth and, and begins to do it on their own. So I mean, I've, 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 said this, I've said this before on the show too, Luz, the reclaiming the flag. Right? Yeah, there you go, but, reclaiming but the flag. But then I thought, has the flag ever been ours? Interesting point. I mean, so... Has it ever been... <laughs> in, you know, the intention of the flag, was that even the, the intention to include us in it? Right. So how can we reclaim something that was n never inclusive of us? I mean, we have Black... So here's the thing. We have Black Lives Matter signs, right? And so if we have that sign or that flag up somewhere, a lot of people are, just say, okay, that person believes that, you know, we need to, to focus on these issues within these communities. Be, just because I don't have a flag that the black and blue flag, just because I don't have that doesn't mean I'm anti-police, right? I'm anti the systemic issues within the police department that 
brings harm to the people they're planning, they want to serve. And so I feel like it's two different meanings. They're using the flag not only to just say, we, you know, we support police. They're using it far further than that meaning. Um, the veterans in my family are are kicking me through my spirit right now <laughs> because we, we're talking about uh, reclaiming the flag. Um, I, I, I will I will offer that no, the thin blue line flag does not violate U.S. flag code because U.S. flag code code does not rep- recognize it as an actual representation of the flag. It is not the flag, mm. and so therefore the the rules around it in the code. And we've had this debate in 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 a family for 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 a good minute. Um, and so when you ask the question, the flag, does the flag represent us? It seems like a proxy question for, or, or synonymous question with, does the United States truly represent us given all of the things that we have failed to address for all of us? And I would, I would wager that, that of course that's complicated and that's true. I think the flag, however, is, is something that we animate. And if we animate the flag in that way, then it it, it, it it becomes problematic in ways in which I have seen beautiful uses of the flag in support of. And and I don't want to and the thing about me, the thing about it is I don't want to give up um the 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 beautiful and deep meaning that this flag can represent just because some people are attempting to 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 um to to bastardize it for something that's destructive, right? That I feel like that gives them too much power. And, and and it's not just bastardizing. I think we went through four years of, of redefining what patriotism means in this country. Mm. And that flag was being flown by these individuals to represent that patriotism that didn't include us. And mm. so for me, it it's that reaction knowing that or at least feeling like when I, and we've talked about this before, I've brought this up before where, you know, um, that the American flag was, was uh, for four years was, was being redefined and that redefinition didn't include you and me, Anthony or Luz or, or Haley. It didn't include us. Well, you have an added challenge with that being from, you know, cause you, in, in your sovereignty identity and, and, and having to fight that, do you have a flag that represents the attempted genocide? Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and so, I mean, so when we look at that flag, it, it, it gets very complicated, but I'm just saying that along with these other flags that we're sending a clear political message mm-hmm. on that beautiful Saturday morning as I'm going to go pick up my quarter side of beef, which I'm all excited about, <laughs> I just felt like I was traveling through enemy territory. Yeah, I, it, you know what I mean. It, I felt like I was sur- I was being surrounded by the Seventh Cavalry. And well, I mean, you said you said the Seventh Cavalry. Yeah, and that's that, that's deep. Yeah, and that that's what I was alluding to. I felt can like you, I was, can you explain that for our listeners? Well, I mean, the Seventh Cavalry is 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 uh um was sent in on what we're taught in our, in history that you're taught in school. The seventh Calvary was sent in for the last battle against the Lakota Indians where they massacred three, 400 um, unarmed because they took their arms from them, unarmed older women and children and uh, shot them to death. 
right? And that was that was wounded knee. And that was wounded knee. Yeah. And and so yeah, so it it was symbolic. And and you know what's I was watching TV and I forget what program, but you know what's coming on that they were proudly talking about how the West was won. Oh, is coming <laughs> on this evening. And I looked at I looked at the advertisement for that. And just, I mean, just think about that, how the West was won. And so for me, that means how the West was lost. Right. And so, well, and how your people were massacred and denigrated. and all of it, right? Years. Yeah. I mean, I'm with, I'm with Anthony on the flag issue, the, the U.S. Uh, flag. I mean, ultimately speaking, we, I mean, I'll speak for myself. I am in defense of the flag because I do care as an optimist uh, about the future of our country. And, and I, I am not ready to uh, throw in the towel on my efforts in terms of helping people understand race equity and understand the systemic uh, changes and dismantling of systemic barriers that we need to, to embark on. Uh, when you fight for something, that means you care for something, right? Uh, versus just saying, yeah, you know, I, I, I am not, it's not worth the effort. For me, it continues to be worth the effort because of the fact that we've got, you know, two daughters who are uh, still expecting to have a long, fruit, fruitful life, as well as the rest of society. You know, as a collectivist, I care for for your well-being, each and every one of you and your families and all of our listeners who are with us, uh, whether by radio today or, or by a segment in the future. So I, I refuse to throw in the towel with that uh, with that in mind that, you know, it is worth fighting for and, and not willing to um, relinquish uh, the identity of this country to evil and cruelty has been displayed by the, the number 45 in the White House, uh, as well as the far right that, that continue to espouse hatred against marginal, historically marginalized communities, uh, which, you know, it goes in, in waves. Um, certainly since 2006, it's been uh, very popular to bash immigrants of any sort, beginning first with Latino, Latinx uh, immigrants, and then going on to, of course, um, East African immigrants, and and then, you know, LGBTQ issues, uh, and then the most recent one is, you know, trans issues, and, and uh, spewing all this hatred towards uh, trans members in our society. So for me, you know, as a again an incurable optimist, uh, I'm I'm gonna keep fighting and I'm gonna what? keep doing my take part. me along with you, Luz. <laughs> drag you're, you're gonna drag me along, and I love you for it. <laughs> well, I I I love you and and know you so well that I know it won't be dragging. That you know you you and I will hang. You and I will hang. <laughs> I think I think the one the, the the through line for all of this and 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 Luz, you bring in the critique of the of the right. I have a healthy and strong critique. Of of liberalizing ideologies as well, um, because it's not it's not a wrong or a right thing. It's a thing that there's thing we need to critique because we need to get better. 
And I hold in just as much critique folks who would who would use destructive language and things as you described um, as those who use placative language to to say on the surface something that may be nice, but underneath the surface have their actions recreate the same systemic oppressions that we are talking about. To me, both of those scenarios are putting on a costume, and I think we all can agree, do not put the flag on as a costume to mask um, a, a destructive and racist mindset, whether it's something that you say outwardly or something you hold internally. I think that is a perfect way to segue into our, as we close our show, because we're coming up on Halloween, and we're coming up on a, on a time when each one of us are going to be encountering and have year after year after year uh, appropriations of our own culture put, put on as costumes. Um, and, and we've always, each year, we've, and I've looked, I look back, each year we give this disclaimer and warning to the community <laughs> to gird yourself because the costumes are coming. Um, and so, um, and we also have even to lose, and you brought this point up, I want to I I have us be able to speak to this as we close out, that even Pop-Tarts has gotten to the game culturally appropriating aspects of Dia de los Muertes in this ha- Halloween season. So lose. <laughs> How's just, that for costuming? It just does not end, my people, <laughs> my folks, mi gente. So I'm at the grocery store this weekend, and I'm waiting to get through the the uh, cashier line. And I look up to my uh, left to the display, the end cap that's there, and I see Dia de los Muertos art and... and um, configurations on Pop-Tarts. And I just thought, <laughs> I I thought I'd seen it all, but not until today. And for <laughs> folks who are wondering about Dia de los Muertos, it means Day of the Dead in English. It's a custom that is just centuries old, originated in Mexico and has been adopted by other uh, countries in Central and South America. And it's celebrated, it's a two-day festival, November 1st and 2nd, and it's really intended for honoring our dead in a way that is celebratory in in nature, meaning, you know, in the U.S., uh, so much of what we do here is is about recognizing death and mourning, and it comes with sadness, of course, and, and we do as well when people pass, but every year for Dia de los Muertos, it's completely different. We celebrate, we choose to celebrate the lives of those who have passed away and we celebrate it with food, you know, their favorite food. So we, uh, many of the families in our communities will create an altar and have the food and drinks that were unique to the folks that we are remembering, you know, so if someone really had a particular uh, favorite drink or a meal that is prepared for them. And it sits on the altar as we celebrate all the good and positive memories that we've had with the loved ones uh, before they departed. And it's something that is intended to bring us a, together as a community, but also awaken the deceased from the eternal sleep to, to help celebrate uh, with us uh, on those dates. So it is really intended to be festive and, and connecting with our our loved ones. And I, you know, when I think about this, I, I can't, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that a local artist, Luis Fitch, spelled F-I-T-C-H, 
He is co-founder of Uno Branding, and Uno Branding is a marketing firm here in Minneapolis that is known internationally for their work and also, of course, across the nation here in the U.S. But Louise Fitch has had an incredible milestone for our community this year. On September 30th of 2021, for the first time ever, the United States Postal Service debuted Dia de los Muertos stamps, postage stamps. And those stamps were designed by Luis Fitch, a homegrown talent. I mean, he's he's not, he wasn't born here. He had actually a uh, native of Mexico and then grew up in California and then relocated to Minnesota. But that's an incredible contribution to the uh, culture here in the U.S. for folks to begin to understand the significance of Dia de los Muertos. So it's it's four stamps. It <laughs> represents a mother, a father, a daughter, and a son. Uh, because our our culture is so rooted in family that this he he decided as an artist it was insufficient to do just one stamp. Um, it had to reflect our cultural values, which is having a family represented. And they're incredibly beautiful and colorful to look at. Uh, so stock, stock up on those. And then the second thing that Louise Fitch has been successful in is creating and partnering with Target, the corporation, an entire Dia de los Muertos line of decor for your home. Anything from uh, cushions to kitchen towels to... Um, Things like chandelier or uh, candle holders, I should say, not chandeliers, candle holders and all of the accoutrement, frame. as you would say. So, so this this collection is so unique because our first of all, that represents our culture going mainstream in a very respectful way. It, it's it, he insisted that it be very tasteful, and these are items that are intended to be part of that Dia de los Muertos altar that I just described a few minutes ago, right? It's, it's intentional to be able to have our families be seen and have available here in the States, the products and, and accoutrements, uh, as Anthony so well put it, that we might have in Mexico, but not have access to it. So it's it's been just a real joy to see that level of connection now with our culture being displayed with mainstream, but uh, stay away from those pop tarts. That is not appropriate. <laughs> you know what the least what, so like what you I mean the what you've said, I feel like um I mean we've seen that a lot in the Hmong community too, you know, where um there are Hmong um like uh, when Tom's came out with Hmong style shoes and everybody was like you know, half the people were like, it's so great where, you know, our fashions made it into mainstream and it was, you know, created by Hmong artists. And that's the important part, right? Is that it's been created by Hmong artists for the mainstream. And the other half of people were like upset about it, you know, like, oh, it shouldn't be commercialized. And so I, I feel like, you know, it, it's one of those double edged swords that we see. Um, but yes, the Dia de los Muertos products from corporations just has blown up. And I think part of it is because of the popularity of movies like Coco. Like Coco. Um, <laughs> like the Book of Life. However, though, here's yep. the big thing. 
However, if you watch either of those movies, it gives you the cultural background of the celebration. So, I mean, you know, the people are capitalizing off of it, but have they even watched the movies? This this is an issue each and every year, and and Louis, you so you so so wonderfully put together the Afro Indigenous Euro uh, uh, combination of deep history that goes into Dia de los Huertos and all of the cultures across the planet who venerate the ancestors by marked days of having them come in and having their memories, spirits, whatever, however you see that in your own context, uh, come back to be with us is not. Absolutely not something you fit on a pop tart. So if you're out there <laughs> thinking that um, thinking about your costume choices for this year as we close out our show, don't be like pop tarts. <laughs> don't be like pop tarts. Um, if you're gonna try to put on somebody else's culture, uh, just know that you're bypassing a whole lot of history and culture, and you can't be mad when the market tries to cancel your behind, just like they canceled the, the head coach of the Raiders. This has been Counter Stories. I'm Anthony Galloway, pastor of St. Mark's AME Church in Duluth and senior partner at Dendros Group. I'm Luz Maria Frias, deputy attorney general with the state of Minnesota. Any opinions and insights that I've shared should not be attributed to my employer and they are strictly my own. I'm Don Eubanks, associate of Dendros Group and member of the Mille Lacs Panel of Ojibwe Indians. And I'm Holly Lee, owner of the Other Media Group and producer of Counter Stories. This is Counter Stories. This program is a co-production of the Counter Stories crew, the Other Media Group, and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. <laughs>